but we're in John 4 today. So if y'all want to turn there, that'd be great. And this is not mine. No, it's not. <laughs> Thank you. But I want to give you a little bit of background um, on um, the, the station of women during the first century before we get into uh, the woman at the well. In the first century, women were not valued. Plato is recorded to have said, women are inferior to men in every way. Intellectually, whoops. Yes. Uh, what you're wearing is gonna take you. Oh, okay. No. Oh, oh, sorry. Okay, women are inferior to men in every way, intellectually, physically, and emotionally, and should be treated as such. Hmm. Generally, women were married to very much older men, lots of times while they were still in their mid-teens, and they had very little choice in who they married. Once they were married, they had very few rights. They were basically just the possessions of their husbands, and the biggest ex expectation for women was to produce male offspring. They were easily divorced uh, for trivial reasons and had no recourse. Now, remember that. Women had no opportunity for education, thus they were powerless and dependent. If a woman even wanted to go to court, she had to take a man along with her because her testimony was uh, considered worthless. Uh, in addition, history notes that Jewish men were known to pray, I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So thankfully, we see Jesus's attitude reflected in the Gospels, and it is clearly at odds with the cultural attitude of the day. For Jesus to attract uh, women to his ministry, to accept them as suitable followers and as supporters is absolutely remarkable. He treated women with the same dignity uh, that he treated or that he gave to men. So this leads us to the encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, a woman so famous that she has her own song. You probably remember, like the woman at the well I was seeking. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's her. All right, so before we read the passage, what do we know about this individual? First of all, she's a woman. Secondly, she's a Samaritan. And thirdly, she's a divorcee. And not just once, but five times. Okay. And remember that in those days, women could be easily divorced uh, for very trivial reasons. I mean, maybe she burned the toast. I don't know. Um, anyway, this woman has three strikes against her before, she, before the game has even begun. And by the attitude or the, the mores of most days, she's considered out. So let's talk a bit about her self-concept or her, her view of herself, her public and private identity. Again, she's a woman. She's been ostracized by her community. She's lonely, she feels worthless, she feels unappreciated, unwanted, she suffers public and most likely private shame. I mean, after all, she's been rejected by five men. Every time thinking, uh, maybe she's thinking, maybe this guy will love me. Uh, okay, well, maybe this guy will love me. And then a third time, maybe, maybe this guy will love me. Anyway, now she's just given up on marriage and she's living with some guy. Um, have you ever experienced rejection? It's not fun. Um, before we moved back to Texas, we lived in Indiana and I had a job there working in a chiropractic office. I sat at the front desk, I, you know, patients came in, I got them in the right spot, I took payments, I answered the phone, it was no big deal, it was a part-time job. 
Um, but I had been there, I don't know, several months, maybe a year, I don't really remember. And uh, one day at the end of the day, the, the doctor's office was in the back. He walks up to the front, you know, where everything's about to close up. And he says, this is hard, but this is your last day. And I was like, okay. He didn't say anything else except, you know, I think that, that we know this woman, we're going to hire her and she's going to be full time. Whatever else he said, I don't even remember because I was so like, what? You know, and, and, and I, I got my stuff together and I got in the car and I just remembered feeling so, I don't know, just, just rejected, just like, what did I do wrong? Did I do anything wrong? I, I was unappreciated. I was hurt. I was like, I, it's hard to put into words, but I just, and, and I thought about this woman and how this has happened to her five times. It's like, I don't want you around anymore. Just go away, you know, find somebody else. And, and, and I just feel that she must have been such, such a mess, you know, such an emotional mess. I feel for her. Um, <clears throat> so you're in chapter four now of John. In chapter three, Jesus is, has been in Judea. And um, let's read John 4, 1 through 3. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So to avoid trouble with the Pharisees, um, who were unhappy with Jesus' growing popularity, Jesus heads north to Galilee. Do we have a map? Let's have a map. We're going to see, hopefully we're going to see. Do we have a map? Yay, we have a map. Okay, you see Judea, kind of in the, in the southern part, kind of brownish. And then you see Samaria in the middle, kind of that bluish part. And then Galilee up at the top. Now you see over here the Dead Sea uh, to the right of Judea. And you see the Jordan River goes up. Uh, until you get to the Sea of Galilee up there. So most Jews, almost every self-respecting Jew, when he wanted to go from Judea up to Galilee, he would, he would get in that little uh, brown part of Judea. He would cross over the Jordan. He would go east, cross over the Jordan, and then he would go up through Perea, the Decapolis, until he would get to a part where um, he could cross back over the Jordan and get into Galilee, totally uh, avoiding, totally avoiding Samaria. So that was the typical route that Jews would take because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Thank you so much for the map, I appreciate that. So Jesus is headed north of Galilee. Um, and um, let's look at verse four of chapter four. And he had, to pass through Samaria. Well, we know that Jesus had travel options. I mean, we just looked at them, right? But the scripture says he had, and I want you to really hone in on that word, had. He had to pass through Samaria. This makes me think of the story in Luke 2 where the big entourage, when Jesus is 12 and there's the big entourage and they've traveled to Jerusalem for the peace of the Passover. And the big part, it's over, and the party is like going home. And suddenly Mary and Joseph realize, where's Jesus? And they couldn't find him anywhere, so they trek back to Jerusalem to find him. And when they do, they find him in the temple. And, um, and they said, why have you treated us this way? We've been anxiously looking for you for three days. And Jesus replies, why? Didn't you know that I had 
to be in my father's house. So he had to pass through Samaria. He had to be in his father's house. The word had in Greek is spelled D-E-I, but it's pronounced die. And it means to be necessary. It's often translated as the word must. And it indicates divine necessity or requirement. Now some examples of that, back in John 3, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. In other words, you have to. It is a requirement that you are born again. And in the same conversation, he talks about as Moses lifted up the serpent, the serpent, <laughs> as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Also in, John, in uh, Matthew 16, later on, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he said that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So when Jesus said that he had to pass through Samaria, he's indicating that, that it was a, a divine requirement. It was, it was necessary. He must pass through. He was doing the Father's will. He had a divine appointment. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. It says here that Jesus was wearied. Wearied means to be worn out, to be faint. And um, we all can identify with that, right? <laughs> Maybe more so now <laughs> in prime time. But, um, I was, um, my daughter, who's pregnant and has 21-month-old twins, broke her ring finger on her right hand. And I went to Midland and was there almost all last week, helping her, doing everything, watching 21-month-old twins. And if you, if you know anything about 21-month-old twins, you put them down in the, they go in opposite directions. <laughs> and, and so I understand what it means to be weary. I mean, at night I was just like, I'm so tired. And at the end of the week, I was like, I'm kind of looking forward to going home because I'm just going to sit down. But anyway, Jesus was weary. Um, now, we know that Jesus was fully God, right? But this is where we can see part of Jesus in his fully man state because his physical body was just worn out. Uh, so he's sitting by the well. It's the sixth hour. Most likely that's Jewish time, which means it was noon. And you've all heard that that's not the time when most women would make the trip to the well. Typically, going to the well was a social gathering for the women. You know, they'd catch up and they'd talk and they'd have fun, you know, and or whatever, drawing the well. Um, but it was not a social gathering for this woman. Let's read verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, uh, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus is alone and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And this woman is shocked because there were intense ethnic and cultural tensions between these two groups. You've heard before that the Samaritans were half-breeds and they had their own eclectic faith. 
They had their own version of the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of the Bible. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they even had their own uh, rendering of Israelite history. So on top of this, the social customs of the day prevented uh, women and men from talking in public. Uh, especially, you would never, Jews and Samaritans would never talk, and even talking amongst strangers was sort of uh, something that you didn't do in that day. And Jesus is breaking all the rules, don't you love it? <laughs> um, and in, in that part that says that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, that means that they would share nothing in common, and that, that, that they would not share the usage of things, and of course that includes anything that would uh, hold water, any kind of dishes or, or things that would hold water. So any self-respecting rabbi would rather go thirsty than risk becoming ceremonially unclean, and he would never talk to a woman with such a sullied reputation. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus draws her into conversation. He makes her curious about several things. First of all, he says, you don't know the gift of God that he has for you. Now we know that, that, was sal that that's salvation. And secondly, he says, you don't know who you're talking to. If you did, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Verses 11 through 14. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman is thinking merely in physical terms, and that's all the context that she has. Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms, and he has some beautiful things to say. First of all, he says, whoever drinks of my water will never thirst again. Salvation is a one-time, once-for-all gift. And secondly, he says, my water will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. Uh, let's turn over to John 7, just a couple of pages over to John 7, because Jesus has more to say about living water, and it's good. John 7, 37, 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now John goes on to explain the statement that Jesus just made in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit is compared to rivers 
flowing with living water. And where does Jesus say that those that that spirit will reside? In our heart. From the heart will flow rivers of living water. The New American Standard calls it the innermost being. So from our innermost being, that's where the Holy Spirit dwells, and that's where this living water will flow from. Let's look at verses 15 through 20. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So the woman is still thinking in physical terms, uh, thinking of her physical need. Boy, it would be great if I could skip this long trip to the well every day. I I think I'll take some of that water. (laughs) But Jesus turns the conversation uh, to focus more on her spiritual need. He asks about her husband, and then he reveals that he knows all about her past marital situations. So she then tries to steer the uncomfortable conversation to a controversial but less personal topic. The Samaritan Temple on Mount Gerizim, that's where the Samaritans worship. They built their own temple, that's where they worship. But you Jews say that we have to worship you know, the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, let's look at 21. I don't think I read 20 before. Let's read 20 in case I missed it. Um, 20 says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Okay, now 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. You, You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we Jews worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is saying there's really no need to debate locations because both Mount Gerizim and the temple in Jerusalem are going to be obsolete soon. But Jesus refers here to an hour in which he is going to soon inaugurate a new age, a new covenant in which true worshipers will worship in a new temple. Now Paul tells us what that new temple is in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, do you not know that you are a temple? of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's what Paul says. Paul says that. And then Paul says in Philippians 3, also, we worship in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God causes us, wells up within us, and we want to worship. We worship in the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. 
and we put no confidence in the flesh. So Jesus and Paul both knew that a true believer can worship anywhere, anytime, even in the darkest of circumstances. In verse 24, where it says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, it's telling us that the essence, the true nature of God is spirit. He's not uh, made of physical or material matter uh, as we are. He's invisible. He's other. Man, we could never comprehend the invisible God unless he revealed himself as he did through his scriptures and through his son, Christ Jesus. So the point that Jesus is making is that true worship is not conformity to external religious uh, rituals or places, but true worship, the worship that God seeks, is internal. It's coming from a sincere heart. It is in spirit. It is motivated by the Holy Spirit who resides in our innermost being. And truth refers to worship that's not fake or false. It's not a mere display of spirituality, but worship of God that's consistent with Scripture and it's centered on Jesus, who ultimately reveals to us, revealed to us the Father. Verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now the woman is, I, I think the wheels are starting to turn. She's kind of starting to get it. She's beginning to speak in spiritual terms. She mentions, I know Messiah is coming and he's going to tell us all things. Uh, and then maybe she realizes, okay, so this man just has claimed to be Messiah, the Christ, and oh my goodness, he just told me all the things about my life. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe he is the Christ. So Jesus in verse 26 confirms her suspicion, but he says, um, I who speak to you am he. Now, in the original language, the word he is not there. So he's saying, I who speak to you am I am. And he says this several times in, in John. You'll see him referring to this. And you'll see I am. And it was so neat because um, I was at the early morning women's prayer time. And one of the songs that we're singing in worship today is about Yahweh. And that is, that is what I am. That's, that's Yahweh. So we're going to get to worship Yahweh, the active and self-existent one. <sighs> Jesus declared here in John that he is eternal God and in fact that he is the Messiah. That references back to uh, Exodus 3.14 where God tells uh, Moses, I am who I am. That's where we, we get that and that's where Jesus is making that connection. Okay, verses 27 through 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the woman drops everything and she runs back to town and invites 
the townspeople to come with the words, Can this be the Christ? Verses 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So now who's thinking in physical terms, right? <laughs> it's the disciples. They're going, I didn't bring him any food. Did you bring any food? Where did he get the food? <laughs> and I can just see Jesus kind of shaking his head, you know, like, okay, come on, guys. <laughs> I used to work with first graders, and it's interesting when you work with little people who just don't think the way we think, and things just kind of, you know, go over their heads, and that's kind of what I'm seeing with the disciples right at this very moment. They just, uh, they just didn't get it. But in verse 34, Jesus patiently explains, and he basically says, I am nourished. I am energized by doing what the Father has sent me to do, by accomplishing his work. Okay, 39 through 42. <clears throat> Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I love that. So anyway, as I was thinking about um, this woman, this uh, past couple weeks, I was just amazed at how Jesus completely changed her story. She went from that woman to the woman who told us about the Christ. So I got to thinking about me. You know, Jesus completely changed that woman's story. He changed her future. He changed her identity. And I thought about me when I was uh, you know, a girl. I was raised in a single parent home. I had my, my, my mom, but I didn't have a dad. Never knew my dad. Uh, mom left him when I was a baby. Anyway, <clears throat> and back in those days, remember, being raised in a single parent home was extremely rare. So I was a girl, you know, raised by a single mom with no dad. Until I was nine years old and I came to Christ. And guess who I am now? I have a father who never leaves, never forsakes, always with me. So as you sit around your table, we have about 10 minutes to discuss, and I want you to think, how did Jesus change my story? It could be at salvation. It could be a point of, uh, of repentance, or when you conformed more to his image, or when he worked some sort of a sanctification in you, in your, in your past, or his ongoing right now but I want you to have a few minutes to sit around your table and you don't have that you can discuss other things that you know maybe stood up to the story but but let's let's talk about how Jesus completely changed our story thanks <laughs>